0: Welcome to Right-Wing Dharma Squads, we are Dharmakirti, Kagyu, Storm, and Aura, if y'all want to say hi. One. And uh, today we're continuing our discussion of Julius Evola's Doctrine of Awakening, um, maybe just as a heads up. To let everyone know that we will be continuing this discussion with at least one more part, um, possibly two. I don't know. We'll have to. I guess it depends on how um, how long it takes and how far we get. Um, I know it's kind of funny. This is sort of, uh, in some ways, almost like a crossover with Westward, but that's cool. I think that's great, and I think um, it's just there's so much going on in this text, and it's it's in a lot of ways a very good introduction to Buddhist thought how the how the tradition understands itself and how it um what it's trying to get at i mean it's not he's very clearly reading it through um you know his own lens and he's importing some some ideas and kind of projecting it onto the tradition in some ways and you know as a devotee of the mahayana i have some <laughs> some issues with the way that he portrays the mahayana which we can get into later Um, but to start, I think I wanted to, to toss it out over to you guys. I mean, I have my, I have like a bunch of notes and things I'd I'd like to talk, but I, I, you know, I, I, I like to start with other people. So yeah, if you had a, something you wanted to address or, or some, um, particular point you thought he made that you thought was interesting or, or something like that. I have a, excuse me.
1: I have a couple of things that I want to get to today. Um, but as a general point. Something I remarked upon as I was reading uh, the beginning of section two um, was just, I don't know, I, I got this odd feeling of like, this is really cool. And, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, I read this book a couple of times, uh, I think about five years ago, and again, maybe three or four years ago. And I actually, I have a paper copy that is all marked up. And... I, um, I've i been basically homeless during this last few years, and I, I travel around a lot. And um, I've been lugging this book around with me. I, I don't take that many books with me uh, in my backpack, my suitcase, for obvious reasons. And um, it's been one of the books that I've, I've kept along with me, and I've barely cracked it in the interim. And when I was packing for the current trip that I'm on right now, finally, I looked at Doctrine of Awakening. I was like, man, I always take this, and I never... I never go back through it so I'm just gonna leave it behind this time and it's funny that now that we're on this trip we uh, we're doing this uh, this series of podcasts on it that's a little irony there but um, because of that now I have this uh, digital copy that I'm using and it, there's no markings in it or anything and when I was looking at the beginning of book two, I got this weird sensation that I was being taught about this obscure esoteric thing that no one has ever heard about um now obviously i don't mean that i really believe that i mean buddhism is like you know there's uh, hundreds of millions of buddhists in the world and and i've been studying it for a long time and this book has been in print for a long time etc etc um and even at evola's time it wasn't that obscure um at the time of writing this book but there's a certain way in which he just the way he uses language um, and that that makes it seem like he's telling you this this doctrine that he found, you know, off in a mountain somewhere and he brought it back and he's telling you about it. And there's something about the freshness that he comes to it with that I find really engaging. Um, and that's in contrast with, you know, the rather dry and academic language that he uses overall in this book. Um and which he uses in his, in most of his writing. But there is this sort of sense, he's talking about at the beginning of part two, um, three of sort of the central concepts of Buddhism, which is um, sila, samadhi, and uh, I always say prajna, but he's, he's saying pana um, because he's using the Pali. But that's just basically morality or, or right conduct of um, creation. So right conduct is sila uh concentration is samadhi and it's wisdom Shila or... in sanskrit shila that's right it's uh,
0: praj- in the to be put it on it's prajna in sanskrit also people say prajna because of the j but it, it works like uh, No, know prajna it's a, with like a g sound there you go um, prajna the the in in sanskrit the j n is like gna. same root as english and... like greek gnosis or you know like english or english word to gnosis or knowledge that like k or Gn—that's like the same Proto-Indo-European as that. What gets represented as a Jn,
1: and that's actually something we should get into a little bit more—is um, some of the roots, some of the shared roots um, between English words and Latin words, and Sanskrit and Pali words, um, because they're all—they're all linked. They're all related on the same family tree of um, Indo-European languages, and they—they they go back to Indo- proto Indo-European. No, I'm just- but, <laughs> That's right, <into> our... and <laughs> uh, yeah. and um and actually there I have a couple other words I'd, I'd like to investigate either today or or next time, in any case, um so yeah the, these three conducts, uh, con- concepts um basically morality, um concentration and wisdom or insight, and um you know these are <clears throat> extremely ex- extremely basic to Buddhism, and they get uh very they get harped on quite a bit in the Theravada. Uh, and so there's some sense of my eyes just sort of glaze over a little bit, maybe when I'm reading some of my more, uh, the stuff I, I I read more often by the teachers that I follow. And when I think about these things, and again, I can't put a finger on it, but there's something about the way that um, the Evola talks about this stuff that makes it feel like I'm reading it for the first time. And that I think is really cool. And one of the one of the benefits of reading this book.
0: Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on, like, this extraneous stuff because we did a lot of that last time, but I do think it may be an interesting and helpful bit of context to note that that was kind of in the air. That was actually very much in the air, I should say, at the time. And um, a lot of people don't know, but one of the, like, most important figures um, of really, like, the Western the history of the Western reception of Buddhism was... Um, uh, Evela's fellow countrymen, and like I don't know how to explain. He was, you know, he was also part of the part of the fascist movement, et cetera. Was uh, Giuseppe Tucci, who was this really really interesting figure. He was basically charged by Mussolini with going all over the world. He went to India and Tibet and collected a bunch of manuscripts. He was in Japan at one point point made radio broadcasts in Japanese, which he spoke fluently. He was just like an all around kind of awesome dude. Um Italian, of course. And and um yeah, and so and but it wasn't just I mean it was Tucci, of course, was like traveling the world doing this stuff. But uh there was also, you know, he mentions Rice Davies, who's like a very important figure as well. He doesn't mention Lamotte, um, who's I believe some kind of like Belgian or like French speaking, but not France, but geopolitical France, um a priest, maybe Jesuit, I'm not sure. But there were a bunch of these types of figures. I mean, and, and these are all people um, at the time, so like late 19th, early 20th century, um, who had sort of, who had, who had made this kind of, uh, in some ways initial, I mean, like, actually there's a long history of contact between Buddhism and, and the Western world. And, and there's good reason to think that David Hume's theory of, um, bundles essentially is It comes from the Skanda theory in Buddhism. Um, it was probably influenced to some extent, but the, um, it was really this this period in terms of like the theosophists and this and this uh what is it called the spiritualist movement and all of this kind of ferment of esoteric activity and thinking about even race so it was was very much part of this i mean like it wasn't an accident obviously that um the uh the the german national socialists were connected with the kind of wotanist pagan type magical ritual circles and all of this kind of stuff i mean it was all kind of connected um at the time and and anyway but to to get back to the to the point is he is not wrong i mean that's the thing is he's 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 putting it through this frame of kind of early 20th century spiritualist um you know these these kind of like broad sweeping context like we talked about a little bit last time um but but he's also he he's doing it in this way where and, and this is i mean I guess, I guess there's a good point to this and a bad point where like the the good point is it should be fresh right it should be you know there's this sense of i mean i've always felt very inspired i don't know whether it's like you could say you know to, to be kind of orthodox about it you could say like well i'm you know it's a connection from my past lives and, and i i certainly actually i do actually believe that but whether it's that or whether it's some kind of, you know, blood memory connection thing with the Aryan thing or just something else entirely, I've always felt, you know, when I when I hear the words of like, you know, something in the treatises of Maitreya, really for me, a lot of it is the treatises of Maitreya, I just think the treatises of Maitreya are amazing and, and really, really just incredible and and they represent themselves, the treatises of Maitreya as like this is the you know this is the supreme wisdom and if you want to attain the supreme enlightenment like here's the steps you need to follow and here's the step the order you need to follow them in and this is how every and it's, it can be you know a, a lot of lists but it's also like this is how to perfect compassion this is how to perfect wisdom this is how to perfect discipline this is how to do all this stuff <laughs> And it's very, very inspiring. And it should be. I mean, I always felt inspired by it. Just like the word, you know, saying, oh, no, this is like the perfect teaching and the perfect thing. And then it's like, wow, that's incredible. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's it's like, you know, you again, if you forget, if you can come at it with fresh eyes, it's like. Oh my! If you really believe this stuff, which I do, it's like oh my gosh! I yeah. found the I found the, I found the teaching yeah. that leads to like total enlightenment. I can't believe I found this. I can't this believe I found book. it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then and then, but then there's this other side of it, which I mean, again, it's not. I'm not. It is not to blame him exactly. It's just um, the the problem is particularly in the way that he frames it as like well, there was this original Buddhism. But then it got you know whatever Hindu-fied or degraded or you know uh, adulterated by all these like non-Aryan influences, et cetera, et cetera, and like w- w- what's interesting about that from my perspective is there's there's like there's a what what I have encountered i I've encountered that kind of approach before in the past, um, but usually it's really retarded. Usually it's like you know, well, the real Buddhism is like science, and it, it would be perfectly in keeping with you know all your prejudices and beliefs as like a modern quote unquote scientific Westerner of such and such educational background, etc. That's not what he's. That's not what pointedly not what he's saying, right? He is saying something quite different. Um, maybe I can like jump. I mean, jump a bit, but uh, where, let me see if I can. Um, let me fill it while I'm. While can somebody filibuster while I find what the passage I'm looking for.
2: Now that is interesting though when you mention that he would say hinduification of buddhism is a is a almost a corruption because he references the bhagavad gita as a uh, as 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 this very yeah. aryan kind of morality and so the idea that it hinduification would be a corruption just it seems like a very remarkable thing to say for someone who has so many positive things to say about the vedas and the bhagavad gita and heck, he even wrote an entire book called The Yoga of Power, which is basically like this about Hinduism.
0: I don't think he if I I don't think he specifically Well, he he contrasts the like original Vedas to the what Hinduism became. He doesn't use the phrase like Hindu I don't think he puts it in terms of Hinduification. That's a more kind of um even like what other frequently what Theravada Buddhists will kind of charge Mahayana and especially Tibetan Buddhism with is like oh that's just Hinduism right that you're you're incorporating all these like Hindu ideas into our thing our thing is pure and original and your thing is stupid and you know not really Buddhist um, t- to kind of simplify um, so here let me I think this is like where I uh there's like a longer passage but it may be worth um well, actually, Storm, do you want to say something first? I'm not sure. Did I cut you off? I, really,
3: I had a thought earlier. Um, yeah, please. When Aura when was talking about how when he's he's reading Evola, um, he's feeling as if he's getting this information from, you know, it has like a mystical quality to it, the way he writes. Like it's coming from, you know, like he went up to some mountain and found a stone tablet, and that's where he got the teachings from. And I've read a, a lot of Evola's books, and it's interesting because he kind of oscillates back and forth between sort of that type of mood and like this hyper academic um, type of mood in his writing. But, you know, to me, that's about having a a consciousness that's not disenchanted. Like most people today walk around in a disenchanted world, you know, everything is understood, physical, uh, mechanistic, you know, it's just, everything's just kind of dead and there's no feeling of possibility. But, you know, if you, if you, you know read the stuff and and go about your practice like you're supposed to you can enter back into sort of an ancient enchanted consciousness where there's this sacredness and possibility that pervades everything and it's kind of cool um, cuz you really picked that up from reading avola which is going to I was just going to mention that
0: so one one of the passages this isn't the main one i had in mind but this was this was one um one thing was uh what does he say he says on this basis we can say more generally this is page 83 by the way in, in in my edition he says on this basis we can say more generally that the buddhist doctrine of awakening demands an anti-mystical vocation it is true that the term mysticos from mean to close to lock in particular the lips originally referred to the mysteries and alluded to what is secret hidden not to be spoken the current sense of the term is however quite different Today, mysticism is used for the tendency toward confused identifications, with emphasis on the moment of feeling, and with none on the element of knowledge and clarity. Experience is certainly accentuated, usually in the face of dogma and tradition, but here it is prevalently an experience in which the sidereal and absolute nucleus in the being is dissolved, submerged, or transported. For this reason, mystical ineffability, far from being connected with a really transcendental knowledge, is of those who, to use Schelling's apt expression, in their confused identification with one state or another, not only do not explain experience, but become themselves subjects in need of explanation. Thus the mystical element, rather than being super-rational, is often sub-rational we are in the playground of the spiritual adventures that take place on the borders either of the re- devotional religions or of pantheistic evasions whose manner is the opposite of that of a strict ascesis of the end of the path of the awakening of the aria and i i mean there's again there's just a lot going on there but i i found his distinction between super like he's saying okay we have this kind of there's like two ways in which you can kind of think about or understand, quote, unquote, mysticism. And one of these is like you having some kind of feeling or experience, you know, which is, you know, like, quote, unquote, mystical experience, or there's different ways, you know, that this gets talked about or thought about. And what he's saying is, well, usually you people who call yourselves mystics or call, you know, you this this experience that you're after that you think that you, you know, is, is, you're describing as sort of outside the bounds in one way of uh you know language and thought um he's like you're right but that's because it's not even rising to that level and when he's saying what this is what what this um this awake this what, 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 what's really interesting to me and i i, I really I, I don't have like any source on this and i really but I'm, I'm I'm wondering where he's getting this i, I guess partially from the uh, he mentions as foundational the distinction between shamatha and vipassana which is like a you know, one of the most important concepts in Buddhism is there's like really kind of two ways of meditating or two aspects of proper meditation, which is this calm aspect and this clear aspect. Um, but but I, if it's just from that, that's really impressive that he would really um, have, have sort of understood that. Yeah, what, what's really, really key and really, really important for Buddhist contemplative practice is this aspect of clarity is this aspect of luminosity or of knowledge um, that that it's vivid that it that that when you're meditating it's not dull it's not um, hmm, yeah it's not dull or kind of like you know blunted it's everything is very sharp everything is very clear everything is very vivid and and so that this when, when people have this kind of mystic, so-called mystical experience it's not that you can't attain states like that But that, you know, um, in the absence of connection to this tradition or some tradition, very you know, this kind of Dharma tradition in this particular kind of way, that you won't, you know, you won't really like, what are you going to, okay, you get, you, you look at a work of art, you look at a sunset, you look at something, maybe you feel nice, maybe you feel nice in a way that you can't quite put into words. That's, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's very pleasant. And there's nothing, you know, that that's fine. But to the extent that, that it's just kind of a feeling that you're, that's taking you along or, or that's transporting you somewhere or whatever, that that's not really what you should be aiming at because it's not really getting down into the roots of your problem.
3: Like there's, you know, you can think of, think of language as being like a, it's like a kind of middle layer, right? And in all these things, there's a sense of, okay, we have to go beyond language because, language is is in a sense it's very useful but it's also like a binding so you know there's two ways to go you can get above it which would be you know enlightenment or transcendence and you can go below it which is essentially going to be uh sentimentality emotionalism or confusion and that's actually something that plays out a lot uh in the context and and in zen in general is people will try to sort of present like a proxy um of wisdom or enlightenment to the masters by being silly or being confusing or or intentionally you know obfuscating things and you know, teachers know that that's what you're doing. They know that you're not coming from a super linguistic clarity of experience. Rather, you're just kind of, like, trying to act like somebody who is. And this it's really cool that he picked up on that um, just from those two things you mentioned. So that's that's something I'm pretty familiar with. And, and there's a whole a whole lot of that. Like, you really have to watch out for hucksters who just want to get you confused. You yeah, know, well, you can't... It,
0: because, yeah, sorry, but, I mean, our whole... Te- life in technological society is basically just a long chain of linguistic conceptual mediations, right? It's just like everything is, me- you know, everything is mediated through technological thinking. Everything is mediated through, uh, you know, I, I have this, I- you know, everything's hyper rational in this really weird way. And so someone who can even just offer you, I think that's in, a, in large, I mean, there's some class analysis stuff you could put on it too, but in large part, why things like you know yoga and quote unquote mindfulness and even just like whatever juice cleanses and all this stupid shit is so popular is because it gives people five minutes or whatever. I mean you know spin class it, it it's forty. I don't actually never been to spin. I don't know how long they are, but the point is like it's some amount of time. What we were like providing for you in, of course, a very structured way, and we're selling it to you. But it's a way for you to like suspend that rational critical mind for however long um
3: yeah and, and we live in a time of, of extreme complexity social complexity technological complexity everything is you know everything is copied over and over again and it's reproduced in media everything you know has any number of simulations and then a lot of the things that play a large role in the average person's life are simulacrums they're they're falsifications and representations of something that never really existed right like even on, even in our thing, there's a lot of that. And so it's really seductive to people who are, who are pretty much constantly overwhelmed for somebody to say, well, it's just that simple. It's just that simple. And they're like, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm now your follower. You have given me the space to let go. And that is actually, and and to be honest with you, it is very simple in the sense that it's not some complex understanding, but just kind of it's not the same, right? There's a different quality. As I said, you can go above into wisdom or you can go below into sentimentality, emotionalism, confusion. So a lot of these people are basically just selling you uh, the equivalent, of the uh, spiritual equivalent of like a CD of flutes and water noises.
0: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> yep. And they called that Bampu zen" back in the day, which means I just want to feel better little girl wigs hmm. <laughs> in. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I'd, uh, I'll just piggyback on what you guys said. Um, it, the, it's, it's therapeutic Buddhism, right? It's just like, oh, it's like getting a massage or something. It's like, uh, you know, like you said, Dharma Kirti, doing a juice cleanse or something. Now, massages are great and maybe juice cleanses are good for you. I don't know but um that's not the point of the practice and avala is very it's very clear that he understands that that's not at all the point of the practice to get just some good warm fuzzies um ajan lee who i talked about in a previous episode uh <clears throat> has a, a dharma talk that he has that he gave multiple times about uh crossing the ocean and that the practice is uh is, is meant to be crossing the ocean which of course echoes a a teaching in the sutras about taking a raft across a river Um, but he uses the ocean metaphor to talk about if you stock up your boat um, with a little bit of water uh, and then you go out into the sea um, then you're going to run out of fresh water even though you're surrounded by salt water and you're going to have to go back into the port and stock up on more water and you're never going to cross the ocean that way because you keep having to go back into port for more water Um, but if you can learn how to distill water in your boat on the ocean then you're, you'll never run out because you just take some salt water and distill it and you cross the ocean that way and obviously you can see what the metaphor here is if you're just using the meditation practice as getting a little bit of respite from the world just uh you know i just need to relax a little bit because work was tense today or something and and that's all you're getting out of it then you go back out into the world and you you very quickly run out of that that sense of peace and everything uh, because that's all you got out of it, right? And so then you have to run back away from the world, and go back to your therapy cushion, right, and <laughs> get a little bit more water. Whereas if you are engaging with, with deep meditation and then and transforming that into this kind of clear wisdom, then that's what empowers you when you're out in the world um, or 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 in deeper meditation also um, to to really start taking the material of life, the, the material of lived experience, as um, as more grist for the mill, as more uh, ways to make you know make enlightenment during life, if that makes sense, to make water as you're crossing the ocean, and that's the real practice, and that takes a lot more effort and discipline than just you know taking a sip of water every time you come into port.
2: And what I find interesting as well, when we, we, he talks about the anti-mystical vocation, is even if you look at say like within Mahayana, that what we what a typical religion might be analyzed as a dogmatic or doctrinal point that's just to be taken on like like almost on faith or on just blind belief in a way these these teachings can actually be seen as almost provisional in a certain sense your understanding of them is supposed to evolve as your meditation practice evolves or as your understanding evolves and so they become a means by which your understanding is supposed to uh, your your understanding is supposed to expand rather than an end of them in of themselves
3: yeah i would go so far as to say that anything kind of put forth as non-provisional is going to be essentially uh wrong and not buddhism that's a pretty extreme view though and and kind of comes more from my school i don't know i mean i don't know how other schools look at that uh, but i assume within buddhism in general that there's, every, there's a kind of uh, well, the, the, subtextual the, well, understanding
2: like, an example like uh Say, for instance, even within Tibetan Buddhism, there was a, 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 a kind of a, a, an example of this. I heard once was a, a Western student asked a Lama, "So, is Tara real?" And the Lama respi- responds, "Tara, no, she isn't real."
0: Yeah. Well, it, I mean, and that—that's like, not to say that there isn't a Tara, or no, there she is. isn't real, In, but it's just but right as
2: much as anything is.
0: Well, th- this so this gets okay. That's actually maybe a great segue into. Um, and here if you don't mind I have there's like a bit of a there's just several longer passages that I thought um were great but but this uh gets into this thing about existence and non-existence and a, and a distinction between um let me just start reading so this is this is page what is this eighty three in the in the edition I have so he says, third point, in the modern world, those who fight the doctrines of imminence and who conceive themselves defenders of the West against Oriental pantheism normally take transcendency as their point of reference and as their watchword. Their transcendency is, however, very relative, and it proceeds from the predominant theological theistic concept. Even in this, Buddhism finds a touchstone for the vocations. Um, the, well, actually, I can skip this down a little bit. Um, Beyond the human bond is the divine bond. Attachment to this or that state, to a state that is no longer human, corporeal, or terrestrial, but that is still conditioned existence. These states, in the Hindu tradition, are personified in the various gods and in their seats. They are equivalent to the seraphic and angelic hierarchies of Judeo-Christian theology. Sid, I found it very interesting that he used the word. I, I'm not. I'm wondering what he said in Italian and if it's Judeo-Christian and if so, like. If he's writing the word judeo-christian in 1950 something like where's that coming that's an interesting side note anyway
3: like th- that would be a buzzword yet yeah i him. i agree
0: it's like how is that that must that sounds like something the translator is inserting anyway therefore to what in a more popular concept is called paradise the doctrine of awakening aims at surmounting these states it tests the vocations by asking at what point one can apprehend that these very states are inadequate in the face of a will for the unconditioned and that to have them at the as the extreme point of reference and as the supreme justification of existence is still a bond an insufficiency a thirst a mania thus in the canon these words appear you should feel shame and indignation if ascetics of other schools ask you if it is in order to arise in a divine world that ascetic life is practiced under the ascetic gotama nor is this all The very notion of existence is attacked, the stronghold of all theistic theology. Here, as we have said, Buddhism is no more than faithful to the purely metaphysical, super-religious teachings of the preceding Indo-Aryan tradition. In this, the personal god, as pure existence, himself belongs to manifestation, and cannot therefore be called absolutely unconditioned. Existence has as its correlative non-existence. For this reason only, that which is beyond both existence and non-existence, which is above and outside these two transcendental categories, can be understood as really unconditioned. So also for Buddhism, this is the extreme point of reference. Not the belief in existence, not the belief in non-existence. Attachment to one or the other of these is a bond, a limitation. By contemplating, according to reality, the origination and cessation of both of these, one must be capable of overcoming both. Even, quote, universal consciousness, unquote, belongs in the Buddhist teaching to the samsaric world. It is a variety of samsaric consciousness. And so, yeah, I mean, when you say, like, Tara knows that she isn't real, like, I I mean, that's a, this is a, I think that passage is just a perfect gloss on, like, what that means.
3: That's a really good explainer for uh, like Nagarjuna and uh, Madhyamaka, in my opinion. I mean, that's that's essentially the takeaway, right? Like, that's a that's an exegesis yeah. I mean, it's yeah, exactly. You
0: can't. I I always thought of it because I'm i I'm sort of like my, <laughs> let's say um, my frame my sort of implicit their framework for thinking about things is in terms of like math and physics, so. Uh, I always thought of it in terms of like a Cartesian graph, so to speak, or like if, if it's like a spectrum of like existence is one, you know, is like, is like negative X and uh, ex- non existence is negative X and and uh, existence is positive X and like Y is I don't even know what, then like it like, you know, Nagarjan is in Z space. He's like outside the graph. You're looking at it wrong.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. When, when all that, you know what that reminds me of? I asked my teacher one time uh, years ago, I said, so the state that you're in, what is it like? And he basically told me, paraphrasing, that it's not a state; it's the state that makes the states possible. <laughs>
0: yeah, I like
3: that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Which totally, absolutely confused me at the time, but I, I mean, obviously, I understood it later. But that that uh, definitely reminds me of that.
0: Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, so so that and that's just to say, so so when I mean, and and you know, I um. At, you know i don't want I, I i uh you you could sort of say i mean i i don't i don't think that he's wrong and i think that that is a ultimately valid kind of buddhist critique of um theism so to speak there are you know possibly worthwhile theist responses you could make um but it doesn't really i mean the point is like how are we you know th- again it's like what what are we w- this is as as much as language can do, right? I mean, and that's you know the the what we're aiming at. And this is you know he he doesn't get so much at least in this kind of first part of the book or first two you know third two half of the book is uh, he 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 doesn't seem overly occupied with the problem of conceptual thought. I'm not sure if he ever really um, starts addressing it or talking about meditation in that sense. What he is concerned with, and this seems like the overarching frame. Um, for the discussion and, and and is, I think, really important is this idea of essentially heroic virtue connecting this idea of like, you know, enlightenment is a struggle. It is a battle. You need to be a spiritual warrior. Um, there's nothing cheesy. If you think of that's cheesy, you're ironic and just go fuck yourself. And like, you know, that's not like yeah. you need to kill your irony and and kill your sense of like, this is a struggle. And and we need to have this kind of heroic attitude Um, in order to to win, to achieve the goal? Speaking,
3: like, since he's talking about theism, you know, I would say that if I'm putting myself in, like, a theist frame of thought, I'd say, you know, okay, so we're going to say that God is unlimited, right? There's no limit on his existence. Well, first of all, that unlimited is a category. That is a description. It's a negative description, but it's still a description, and therefore it's a limit. And if you, you know, the more you say about God, you're limiting him, right? So, in yeah, my mind...
0: I, I think he mentions, like, pseudo-Dionysius and negative theology as, like... Yeah. It's like, yeah, so actually I'm, pretty good. You know, that's okay, but that's just not what people do usually, which is true.
3: You can't get very far with that. I mean, you're gonna... It's, it's either gonna come down to... Um, from theistically, it's gonna come down to accepting an article of faith or um, being able to, to rest your language and experience um, God. Right. That's that's what it has to come down to.
0: Well, so, okay. So, so no, nobody. I was waiting for somebody to maybe jump in. I there was another uh, passage on this. Oh, sorry, w- Kagi. what did you? Oh, have Oh no, time?
2: it's. I, I've I've often kind of thought that some of the better conceptions of theism kind of do point to some kind of non-dual interpretation. Um, just because when it, it it seems like when you do talk about the unlimited, it must include, like you said, something that goes beyond simply being to the unmanifested as well. And limiting it's. Now that's it's, it just kind of interesting contrasting that with, say, what you'd see with Aquinas, for instance, God is subsistent being itself, um, almost makes it more of a limitation as compared to this understanding here.
3: And at, the, at the end, Aquinas said, you know, compared to the things I've seen and experienced, everything I've written seems like so much straw.
2: Yes, yes, so he had he, a mystical he, he, he experience. He there. abandoned yeah. it
0: halfway through. He was, the the summa was supposed to be, like, uh, what was it, all the seven sacraments according to the Catholic Church, and I think it was, like, midway through the three or fourth, and he's like, he had some crazy, myst- quote-unquote, mystical experience, whatever that, you know, he's, he's some direct vision of something, and uh, he's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, those that, whole, like, words, not so much. <laughs> so yeah. talking
3: about uh talking about heroic virtue, I think you know how I am and with my rants against like the sort of like um ironic consciousness, which I think is just so miserable. Yeah. Like yeah, okay, sometimes it is funny, and if you're just being funny, then go for it. But I think a lot of people just again, because of how stimulated overstimulated they are by like everything, um, sort of get stuck there and you, and your life will be much better and you'll be much more authentic uh if you can just sort of let go of the idea that if something sounds corny to you, which is another way of saying it can sound real, um, that it's wrong. And I mean, some stuff is – ma- like,
0: you need to be able to be like, no, that's maudlin garbage kits Right, And right. just to get the no. – Well,
2: I mean, in a, in a world full of, of, of simulacrum of, of, of ideas that have long since been corrupted, irony is kind of the natural reaction to – a good point. A ridiculous uh, – just a ridiculous uh, facsimile of the original. And so yeah. when you actually see it it's it, people don't really know what to make of it they've never seen the original before
3: That's a good point all they've seen are like um uh productized you know sort of i guess like economic corruptions of of like real ancient wisdom they don't when they really see it and and even when they when they someone someone who lives their life taking that seriously it's like a it's like them seeing something they've never seen before like a new species
2: Yeah like i mean dharma nowadays like people's exposure to it comes like in this highly corrupted form of like White girl yoga and mindfulness (laughs) practice, which is designed to reify the self as opposed to
0: yeah, a a friend's uh, a friend's girlfriend who's now they're like, you know, they're not together anymore. But uh, (laughs) she, it was it was funny because um, she's like she heard, she's like, you know, somebody, somebody, I think my friend mentioned that I was like, you know, kind of, you know, interested in Buddhism. She's like, oh, you're interested in Buddhism. I'm a Buddhist. I'm like, oh, cool. What kind (laughs) of of Buddhism are you interested in? And she's like, oh, well, I don't really, you know, it was like, I like to read, it wasn't even like Pema Chodron. It was like, like self-help books. (laughs) And it was like, and she had a, like a statue of a Buddha. And I was, you know, she was just kind of there in her room. And I'm like, oh, um, well, you know, it would be good if you want to like, do this like a good way you know maybe you could make offerings you know traditional buddhist practice really throughout the buddhist world is you know you know candle incense uh water flowers i mean there's several different things you could do never never did i mean it was just it was purely like a lifestyle accessory it was purely like you know i i i I, I, she wasn't like a bad person or anything it was just as you say a lot of i think for a lot of people is it's kind of like i mean you see I, i actually don't think it's the worst thing i think it's kind of there's a a kind of part of me that's like um i don't think it's a bad thing that that americans kind of associate buddha statues with kind of being cool and like it's a good thing to have and like who wouldn't want a buddha statue and i think this is like one way in which we really make inroads and and we you know like we gradually adapt um as a you know western culture to the dharma and sort of achieve this symbiosis that i think we're we're heading towards um but yeah we i mean i see my role in that and our role as the right wing dharma squads etc in in that process is keeping things on track keeping things authentic
3: and at least if you're immersed in that kind of commodified buddhism you now are you have the dharma in some form in your life there's, there's a much greater yeah, chance yeah. that you will go deeper into exactly. it somebody who's not been exposed to even that
0: there's a fa- there's a very famous story in in like a tibetan tibetan circles about like a a pig A dog that that was chasing a pig and the pig just sort of happened to get in like around a stupa and so the dog and the pig were chasing each other around the stupa a couple times and it was just the merit from like having that (laughs) very faint karmic connection with like circumambulating a stupa stupa i don't know i've mentioned before but for those who don't know it's like a kind of buddhist monument that's um, very, you know, all over the Buddhist world. Again, it's sort of like a representation of the Buddha's mind in a kind of monumental form. Uh, some are very big. They can be also very small, put on your altar. But the point is, um, it was just, and, and you're supposed to, like, traditionally, you would, like, walk around them with your right, sh- in a clockwise direction because the right side is better. And so you're, like, showing respect by constantly having your right side. And so they were they were circumambulating, and, um, and it was that connection that enabled them to achieve a human life and eventually attain... Buddhahood, um just because they were like, there was a stupa there that they happened to kind of accidentally circumambulate.
3: That's really cool. I've never heard that. I love that. Yeah. Where do we go next?
0: Well, so I, I mean, well, on this, I think this, I, I don't, I hesitate. I mean, you know, I, it, it's an interesting kind of question. Like, how much do people? How much of this because people want to have a discussion of something that they're already familiar with, or or have read, or will read, or are reading, and how much of it is sort of a substitute. I don't really know and, and maybe it doesn't really matter but um, I, I do think it's worth emphasizing that um, Evola is really really big on this idea of like as we said masculine warrior Aryan virtue as kind of the defining characteristic of what he's identifying as the doctrine of awakening and so we had another kind of there was another interesting passage this is um, on this point on page 98 he says fourth we have and this is like he's going through the the qualities of the aryan combatant as he put it this uh, is in the english translation fourth we have virya bala or virile energy and the, he notes correct I mean, of course as i guess an italian speaker he would say you know the, the root of virya is the same as that of the latin term vir man in the particular sense as opposed to homo this is also where we get um our english word virtue from the latin word virtus which is in a sense manliness but not just like I mean, we, it, it kind of has that sense of man, manliness, not just of, like, being a proper man, but, like, with the entailed meaning that being a proper man means being strong, means being, yeah, virtuous in that sense, means, etc. A strength of will, which here shows itself as the power of, of repelling unhealthy tendencies and states and of promoting the appearance of healthy ones. Above all, one must rely on this strength and replace delight in craving with by de, uh, by delight in heroism it's Kama with Vira a substitution that is a basic point of the whole ascetic development one must fundamentally change one's attitude in such a way that the heroic pleasure becomes the highest and most intense pleasure that the mind enjoys Buddhism teaches each man is master of himself there is no other master by ruling over yourself you will find a rare and precious master uh, and I mean, again, this is so often the case. There's just so much going on here, but I, I, I think that this idea of like repelling unhealthy tendencies and promoting healthy ones, I, uh, maybe or you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe like the this kusala akusala distinction is, um, it's not that it doesn't exist in the Mahayana or Tibetan Buddhism or anything, but like that's really, really emphasized in in Theravada. No. Which distinction? Like the kusala akusala, like the. Kushala in Sanskrit, but like this, this wholesome uh, is, I think, how uh, Tanisana translates this term. It's a Pali term, but it means like wholesome and unwholesome, right?
1: Yeah, there's a sense of uh, another way to translate clinging um, is as feeding. um, And so that your your mind is going to be feeding on certain things. Until you reach enlightenment, it's going to feed on something, um, just like your body must feed on food. And you can either... Use wholesome acts, wholesome thoughts, uh, wholesome words to feed on, or you can choose unwholesome. And if you want to move towards the towards ultimate enlightenment, uh, while you're still in the conditioned state, it's it's best to. <laughs> it's pretty obvious which one you want to pick. And yes, that is something that gets emphasized quite a lot.
0: That's an I, I actually I heard had heard that once from a um a high profile Theravada teacher whom I will not mention his name, but um. Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I recall, but I would forgotten about that bit about the feeding. Yeah. That's, um, that's great. That's such a, such a great way of thinking about it. Um, yeah. Just like guard your senses, look, care what you're thinking about, what you're looking at, et cetera. Um, yeah,
1: I, I, I find it very useful because, um,
0: you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, we can
1: joke all we want and, uh, and I won't speak for you guys, but, um, you know, I'm not an enlightened Buddha, and I'm living a I'm living a conditioned life. I'm an ordinary human being, still, and um, and so you know, my mental states are conditioned. And if you choose to feed, you know, your your mental state with with you know certain activities, certain thoughts, and and. You know, visions and all these kinds of things. Then you that will influence what your future conditioned state is. And although I'd love to achieve enlightenment um, at the end of this sentence and then not have to worry about this anymore, probably I'm not going to. Look, I just didn't. <laughs> um, so that means that that means for the serious practitioner um, who is dead serious about reaching but enlightenment, but realistic about how how much further he has still to go that this this heuristic of wholesome and unwholesome feeding is um, for me very very helpful
3: i would say um and this is this is going to be one of the things uh, that you <laughs> don't don't like so much maybe from the, the zen frame of reference but i would say that um and i'll describe this experience as well that it's not enlightenment is not something you lack that you get it's more like something that you had all along that you begin to notice and even people who get there there's still work to be done afterwards the the you're still have an aspect of yourself that is conditioned it's just it exists within the unconditioned that is fundamentally part of you if that makes sense you um the conditioned aspect is now inside surrounded by and, and actually even upheld by the unconditioned that you are
1: so yeah, that, no, do, I'm down. I'm down with that. And I mean, that's, I, I mean, that, that's there's no contradiction there, though.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's just that's another right. way to think about it. And and I've said before to to people, um, a Zen master is more like someone who doesn't have something than someone who has something. Y-
0: yeah, right. this is actually a really good point, and and this connects to like several things. Um, the the essence of it, as I understand it, is his his critique of the Mahayana, like this is really the essence of it, is because, yeah, from from the perspective that you were describing, which I share, um, which is a Mahayana, I, I don't actually think that the Theravada or like non-Mahayana would necessarily disagree, it's just this is kind of one of the main things that gets emphasized in the Mahayana is that um, all beings, every single being, from the, from the most tortured hell being to the stupidest, you know, worm to the gods in the god realm and all the every every single being every single sentient being has the capacity to attain buddhahood will in fact on a long enough timeline attain buddhahood and so our goals it is. Is, it is yeah well right well that's a so for that, that's kind of more of a tantric perspective at least from like within the indo-tibetan thing is we say like is yes but but you have to kind of there's other things that have to be in place for that um to like you really have to understand get what that, that means get yeah exactly exactly Um, But in the meantime as bodhisattvas or as you know practitioners who have taken bodhisattva vows Which is really what distinguishes the Mahayana from the non-Mahayana You know our vow is that we are to help all beings in Because they have this capacity, but there's various things, you know holding them back And so what we have to do is we have to facilitate this we have to like and that's like the kind of um This radical altruism of the Bodhisattva vow is that, you know, it's not just that we um, can do this or should do this. It's like, no, I make a deliberate choice as a Bodhisattva to remain in samsara until every single sentient being without exception is freed from samsara. And then once they're all gone, once samsara is totally empty, then I will leave, then I can like, you know, boogaloo off. Um, but not until then. And, and, and and of course, again, from a tantric perspective, this kind of gets reworked. And you could also say, I mean, even think from a general Mahayana perspective that it's a little more complicated than that, just in that, like, you know, it, 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 but, but the point is that that's the intent. That's the frame. That's the kind of like, and, and buried in that, or like sort of axiomatic for that is this idea that, um, it's the, the nature of the mind of all of all sentient beings that they do have this capacity, which, which, uh, very, very explicitly rejects. Um, I think to his detriment.
3: Interesting.
0: Um, let me see if I can find. I, uh,
1: yeah, I wanted to, uh, yeah, please. I missed my, I missed my chance about, uh, eight minutes ago or so when you were talking about, uh, and uh, quoting Evelyn, talking about the, um, etymology of virtue. Uh, I said at the beginning, I wanted to talk some more about some of these, um, some of these ancient words. And that's actually the one I had in mind.
0: Again, the, Fantastic. the term, yeah. go, go,
1: the term in Buddhism is wiria, Um, which has many, many meanings. Um, and I just wanted to point out in addition to what Dharma Kirti already told us about how it's linked. So that's the V I R is the root and it's getting pronounced in India with a W sound. And in fact, actually in Latin as well. Um, virtus. Uh, and that's again the same root as the English virtue. And in more archaic English, you can hear the word virtue used more in line with with the the Latin meaning of it. And um, although it did carry this sense of like goodness or morality even back then, that became sort of more the the English meaning, at least in modern English. But they're all linked back to this idea of yeah of manliness it it gets emphasized different ways in sanskrit and pali um not just as manliness um but interestingly just the one i'm now i all i just did was repeat what dharma already told us but i find it fascinating and what the only one thing i wanted to add is that in modern hindi wirya uh the exact same word used in sanskrit uh just means semen in fact so it it, it there is this sense of like the essence of manliness um that's carried through all those different languages and it gives you an idea what maybe the proto-indo-european or indo-aryan root word what what the the meaning of that was and that there was a concept for it which was so central and rooted in their culture and in their in their philosophy and religion that we kept you know because some of these words get hopelessly corrupted in their modern form but this V-I-R root has survived all the way into modern Hindi uh, as, as semen and in, in modern uh, English as, you know, our word virtue. So, I, you know, I don't have necessarily a conclusion to, to, to draw from that, but I do find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, no, it's
0: – yeah. Um, I, I found another pa- – the – Sorry, I'm like all over the place. I just had. Sorry again for this, but it's uh, unavoidable at this point. But I, there was another passage. Sound. We should be happy to hear that. Sound. <laughs> there was another uh, passage that I wanted to highlight um, related to what we were talking about before. Um, he says one of the aspects of Mahayana Buddhism that represents a decline from the original is the supposition that this element of panya or pragna, uh, wisdom, is present in everyone. It considers each individual as a potential bodhisattva that is, as being capable of becoming a Buddha. Whatever from the standpoint of the doctrine may be said about it, this view cannot in practice be said to be at all in conformity with reality Uh, The manifestation of this knowledge and of this strength, particularly in modern Western man, can rightly be called a kind of grace in view of its marked discontinuity when compared to all faculties and forms of consciousness, not only in normal individuals, but even in the most gifted of our contemporaries. The example of Prince Siddhartha that is to say, the fact that he had no need of masters, transmitted doctrines, or initiations to open the way to liberation, since the direct reaction of a noble spirit confronted with the spectacle of contingency and burning of the world was enough for the purpose, this example should lead no one to repeat the adventure of Baron Munchausen when he attempted to raise himself in the air by pulling himself upwards by his hair. In one way or another, something must happen, a kind of profound crisis or break, or the receiving grace such as to provide a positive opportunity and a base for a new life. It cannot be repeated often enough that the man of today constitutionally is profoundly different from the man of the ancient Aryan civilizations of the East. Views such as that of Mahayana Buddhism already mentioned are better ignored if we do not wish to deceive ourselves or others. Now, yeah, sorry, go on,
3: please. Okay, there's a big problem with this uh, for (laughs) me um, because, you know, he's... I hate to say this, but there's a big bias here with him uh, because he's he's a traditionalist in in the capital T sense. He wants he wants this uh, capacity to experience awakening to be kind of tied to personal quality, um, and there are senses in which this is true. But he's he's wanting to kind of rule people out fundamentally uh, based on being low quality, low caste, whatever. And the actual thing is it, the the way it really is is that. You know, if you are a good, virtuous, noble, high-quality person, there are ways it, that it may be easier for you or you may be closer to the experience of enlightenment, right? And then there are also ways in which someone who is sick, downtrodden, broken, sad, ugly, whatever, that kind of experience, and even the experience of being really immoral and doing bad stuff, can also be an impetus for awakening. You know, there's a, an understanding across a lot of these traditions that you know, the Kali Yuga is actually a very fertile time for spiritual growth because it's so bad. And when it's bad, it's obvious.
2: That and, is and ex-
3: another thing. Like, sorry, or I just won a little bit. Um, there's, there's a very, there's, at any person, at any moment, there's no more than a hair's breadth between you and awakening. It's right there.
1: Go ahead. That's, that's extremely well said. And when you first started speaking, I, maybe audibly started to draw my breath because i was going to argue with you but as you continued your piece there i i found myself agreeing storm um so i'll still say what i was going to say but don't take this as an argument um i will say that i think that i think that you're right and wrong about evola's motivation there's definitely this side to him that likes to point out the noble nature of certain, you know, elevated people and, and that the other people may have an ignoble nature, but I, I think it's selling him a little bit short to leave it at that, because that belief is only a small part of what's the much bigger belief, which, you, which you mentioned too, which is his, his belief uh, and his membership sort of in this traditionalist school. And he's, yeah, he's saying yes. We are in the Kali Yuga, and your point is very well taken. That it's a great moment for spiritual, um, spiritual growth, and that the you know the most downtrodden um, uh, of society, the you know the drug-addled loser or whatever, doesn't realize how close he might be to enlightenment. All that is well, ta- well-spoken and well-taken. However, his major point shouldn't be elided over, which is that whether or not we agree with him he he's saying that that there in this cycle of the ages there existed a time in which people like people existed very close to this and um and and had had an ability to see things that that even the most enlightened of us today like have to struggle and struggle and struggle to see um and that we just we live in a like that metaphysics itself has changed uh, through over the ages. Again, I, I'm going to remain agnostic on that. I, I there's part of me that finds that a very attractive doctrine, partially because it's so um, contrarian to our modern beliefs. Right. And I, I I am nothing if not a contrarian. And so I part I, yeah, of me, part, part of me is attracted about. to it just because it's so like out there and hardcore. Yeah. fair. Uh, totally uh, uh, yeah but another part of me of course is just totally skeptical or at least agnostic because i don't know how the hell would i know um but anyway i i, I guess I'll, I'll start rambling if i continue too much but i i i do want to give evola his his fair shake here i don't think he's just motivated by like a snobism or anything
2: the thing is though you know in a certain sense Evel is actually not completely wrong when he says that yeah. there are, are a lot of people who are incapable of achieving enlightenment at this moment i mean we there are conditions that are required even with someone who has in theory a precious human birth in order to practice the Dharma and actually gain anything out of it someone who's born and say I mean there's like certain conditions that can that can preclude you from achieving that like someone who's born among barbarians for instance or lacks certain faculties to understand it and so from that perspective in sort of this momentary um within this particular lifetime there definitely are people who will not actually be able to achieve enlightenment because that, they that's lack
0: that's exactly issue. right and, and that the problem that i have and i just wanted to maybe make this more clear but think i i, I think that maybe this is the way to thread the needle between what sorm was saying what aura was saying which i i both i think those are both great points is yeah it's not a necessarily because like he 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 like i guess in a certain sense he's not super concerned with like the metaphysics of is it p- possible at some point that this sentient being in a future life could be born in better circumstances that he doesn't necessarily seem to be denying that but he is getting at something which I think is really true and really important, which is that, you know, our social environment and and metaphysical environment, even, I think that's a really good point, or something I mean, something I hadn't really connected in that way, but I think you're absolutely right. And if you, if you, one of the interesting things to me, again, on as on, again, maybe a side note, but I think maybe people will be interested, is um, part of the degeneration of the age, in terms of the Kali Yuga type framework, is that causality becomes, strange that thing you know regular causal relationships become increasingly irregular uh consequences are kind of seem wild and unpredictable and maybe out of um uh like like you know a little bit of cause has a huge effect way more than you would expect and i I mean just look around you if you have any doubt as to like what's going on like just just look or see hmm, does that match up with my experience it certainly matches up with mine um but in, 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 so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about like, you know, think about this also from the perspective of someone who lived through this two-part conflict between the Anglo empire and the German empire that just fed the best men of our race into a meat grinder for absolutely no purpose, right? I mean, what do anybody gain from this? And, and, and millions dead and, and, and economies destroyed and all of this stuff and and all of these people the best of our stock you know because it was it wasn't the coward you know the cowards were the ones and this in the sneaky crafty ones and the ones who weren't as brave or strong were the, were not the ones who were leading the charge in in the trenches in the First World War and they were not the ones getting um, gunned down it was the brave men and the strong men who were getting gunned down and and same in to a large extent in the um in in the second part of that conflict so when you uh. When you look at it in those terms, and I think you know, when you see the results in terms of things like these soy boys running around with their mouths agape, uh, talking about the uh, no man's sky or or whatever, you know, and all of this kind of you know, and they're getting excited for next Marvel product. Um, I think in, in a certain very important way, it's it's just very hard to argue with, with, the, with this analysis that, yeah, we live in a time of just like where where masculine virtue. Uh, has both declined and when we, as we see with things like this uh, development of this nomenclature of quote unquote toxic masculinity, just the idea of masculine virtue itself is under attack.
1: I, um, I'll skip to another part in the text. If you don't mind Uh, guys. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Please. Sorry, I I went on my little rant and (laughs) no, no, it's, it's really good. I just, I, it's really good. Um, I think we all agree. Uh, First of all, Buddha Linkola in the chat points out that, uh, I assume he's talking about in Hindi, as I was, that wirya uh, not just means semen, but also means potency uh, or strength of medicine. So that's another uh, gradation of meaning to that word. Again, fascinating. Uh, Evola, on page 100 of uh, the text that I'm reading, addresses one thing that we have brought up many times um, on this podcast, and that is, well, we, we talk about the lists in Buddhism, but we also talk about the repetitiousness of, of the text. And I found that his take on this was genius and also immediately struck me as true. Um, and uh, to put this in perspective, just this last week, I was rereading an essay by Tani Bhikkhu about how to approach reading the sutras um, and why you should read them and why you should make them a part of your life. Um and because the sutras from one perspective can be awfully dull, sometimes um I was sort of re- refreshing my memory as to why it was good, and something oh, yeah, that know, he said in,
0: yeah this is sorry go on. this is great yeah
1: and, and and something he said in there that i I either never noticed before or I'd forgotten was his suggestion that you read them out loud um and Tani Sarbeku says for two reasons, one because there's a, a rhythm to them for a reason, and two something that evola doesn't mention, but he, he I like that Thani Saro Bhikkhu says you, you get in the practice of saying good things, uh, and it's just good practice for your, your faculty of speech to be saying these things. Anyway, here's the quote from the Doctrine of Awakening on this topic. He says, as we have discussed the quality of objective vision, we should also mention in passing the style in which many of the oldest Buddhist texts are set out, a style that has been called quite intolerable because of its continued repetitions. What is the purpose of these repetitions? The usual interpretation of the Orientalists, that they are mnemonic aid is the most superficial. So I think Evel is saying, yes, they are a mnemonic aid, but there's much more. There are other reasons, he goes on. In the first place, some ideas have been given a particular rhythm so that they are not arrested at the level of simple discursive intellect, but can reach a deeper and more subtle zone of the human being and there stir corresponding impulses. This agrees with the more general aim, explicitly stated in the texts, of permeating the entire body with certain states of consciousness, so as to cause certain forms of knowledge or certain visions to be experienced bodily. Rhythm, both mental and more important, that connected with breathing, is one of the most effective methods of achieving this. The modern intellectual, only interested in grasping an an idea or theory as quickly as possible in the form of a schematic or cerebral concept, will entirely miss the point of the repetitions in the Buddhist texts. And it is natural for him to judge this as the most intolerable of all styles. And I'll, at the risk of reading too much, I'm going to read the next little section here. He says, but the repetitions, at least a certain class of them, particularly lo- particularly those in the Majjamiya Niyaka, I'm sure I'm murdering that. Majjimunikaya. <laughs> thank you. Have also another aim that of encouraging a certain degree of objective, impersonal and strictly realistic thought. It is in fact, easy to see that the repetitions form connected series in which the reality or fact, the thought that is formulated in grasping it, or the thought that is aroused from hearing them, the verbal expression of this thought or the exposition of the fact are found in exact logical sequence. This is how the structure of the repetitions is built up. First of all, the text describes the fact. Next, there appears the person who takes note of it and who comments on it, using the same words as those in which it was given, in fact, the first place by the text. Thirdly, the person may refer to others in the same words again, a pure reflection of a thought conforming to reality. Um, and he goes on a little bit more, but basically he's, he's saying that like the, the form of the sutras with these repetitions is not only a mnemonic aid. And not only a, a kind of mantra that you, you're rhythmically speaking, but it actually is in its form a representation of the way that knowledge is passed from one person to another. And so there's sort of a, a profound and esoteric truth to them. That Reading that got me excited to go back and start rereading um, some sutras or reading some for the first time and, and speaking them aloud because that's a cool little esoteric nugget that anyone can participate in um, at any time they want.
0: Yeah man that's uh I that's fantastic I don't I really def- have anything to add to that do you guys
3: I I am definitely going to go back and read the platform sutra aloud <laughs> probably after we get done with this
0: <laughs> We should all read the uh, the heart sutra would be good too I, mean, I have to figure oh, out yeah. a way to incorporate yes. that into stuff but I think yeah the heart sutra is um really great I don't do enough I I think that well, that's I mean you know there's like a side note again but um you know read the these words are blessed, you know. These words are are. There's an immeasurable benefit that comes from from reading the sutras, from hearing the sutras, from writing the sutras. You know, printing them. Um, that's a very, like, long-standing thing that's been understood.
3: And, and sound is very powerful. Music and chanting. They're
0: that's a form of magic. Yeah, exactly exactly um i don't i think i mean there's obviously there's as i said there's just these things are so rich and there's so much to say but i, I um we've gone on for a bit and uh, i don't know that i i want to um add anything at this point do you guys have more do you want to say or do you want to continue for a bit or, or how, how are y'all feeling
1: well if we have another week for it i think that uh i'm i'm, fine. I'm thinking at least
0: one i think maybe maybe even two depending if that's okay with y'all. Okay.
2: I, I think we could leave it at that. All,
0: All right. right. I have something up here oh, at the end. Please. Yeah.
3: Okay. So this is um, from the, the text that I really like a lot by Urs App, who's a, I believe he's a Swedish scholar of Zen. Uh, he's a practitioner as well. Um, and to set the stage for this little interaction, two monks are walking on a road and they meet one of their fellow monks who uh, has been in a different master's temple. So it's these three guys having a conversation on the road. And I'm gonna substitute some words so it's easier to understand. Um, when Zing Yan was on his own after completing his training, one of Guishan's disciples came to see him. Tell me what Guishan is teaching these days, Zing Yan asked him. Well, if somebody, holds, <coughs> if somebody asked him why Bodhidharma came from the West, he just holds up his staff. And how do you fellow and your monks understand that? We believe the master's intention is to reveal mind by means of form. Zing Yan says, your understanding is too abstract. The monks ask him, well, then how did you understand it? At that, he held up his staff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Storm, for that lovely koan. Thank you, everyone. Um, thank you, Buddha B- B- Lincola, who I, I, have, I love your name, and I'll have to uh, see if I'm not already following you on Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, this has been great, and we look forward to part three next week. Till then, uh, take care.